and welcome to What the Catcher with me, Bettina Campolucci Bordy. And me, Nikki Webster. Our podcast is all about sharing our passion for the things we eat, good food, and the people behind it. Which is why we're so pleased that our lovely sponsor is Doug Drinks. You can see it all for yourself at dougdrinks.com. And they have kindly given us an exclusive discount just for you, our lovely podcast listeners. If you enter the code WTFDUG10, you get 10% off all their milks. So let's meet this week's guest. Today we're joined by the inspiring Sarah Langford. After working for 10 years in law, Sarah embarked on a new venture in farming. The best-selling author has now written her second book, Rooted, Stories of Life, Land and a Farming Revolution. We chat to Sarah about her move from the city to the countryside, what regenerative farming is and the impact this has had on her personally. Hi, lovely Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's an absolute... Oh, yeah, thank you for having me. to have you. Um, we are very, very excited to have you on this podcast. Um, just starting off to ask, how how are you doing? We've obviously had one of the hottest weeks in um, in the UK recorded, and uh, that's going to be um, mm-hmm. uh, enveloped into our conversation today. Um, but how are you doing? How are you, and and what are you up to? Uh, <laughs> I'm actually doing that thing where you're trying desperately not to drop one of the balls <laughs> that you're spinning. <laughs> we, 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 we know that. <laughs> Both my kids break up tomorrow. I've got an article due out on Monday. I've got an event, a book event tonight. And I'm trying to pack the house up because we're going to the farm for the whole summer. And um, so it's, yeah, it's good. It's good. Yes. It's sweaty. That's what it is. At the moment, it's sweaty. Can't deny it's not been sweaty. It's been, um, <laughs> but it's easy. Yeah, definitely. So you you've got a book um, that's out that we'll we'll chat about in a minute. But before Rooted came out, you had a long-standing career uh, in in law and a barrister. And you've written a previous um, best-selling book. So how did it all start for you? Tell us a little bit more about that. <laughs> by complete accident <laughs> this is why you should never have a five-year plan I've stuck to that the whole of my life <laughs> and it's kind of worked out right um yes I was a criminal and family barrister so I mostly defended people mm-hmm. and I did some family law which was mostly representing parents who were having their children removed by the state so quite at the kind of the cutting throat end of the law where I was in court every day, often dressed up in a wig and gown and doing advocacy every day. And I lived in London and traveled all over the Southwest, which was kind of the circuit that I was on. So on one day I could find myself in Bristol and the following day I could find myself in the Isle of Wight, next day Slough, Reading, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I did that for a decade. And then I did something really stupid if you're a court-based barrister, which is to have babies, (gasps) because they do not go at all well together. Can't take them to court, turns out. And uh, the unpredictability of your diary when you're a barrister just makes childcare really, really difficult. Because you often don't know where you're going to be the next day, which sounds absurd and is absurd but you get so used to it when you're in the rhythm of it that it's just you accept it as a kind of cultural abnormality. And so I had my two sons and it was when I was pregnant with my second son that I met the woman who's now my literary agent. And as a result of that, I wrote a book called In Your Defence, which really tried to tell the human story of the criminal law. And it did it quite narratively so that each chapter read like a Mm. fiction story but everyone in it was real anonymized but real and i wanted to take people who had never stepped foot into a courtroom into the world that i've been living in for 10 years and show them that the stereotypes and cartoons that they often Mm. read about or were shown on tv or in newspaper articles was never the whole picture and 
I wanted to kind of show how important the law was to us all, even if mm. we never thought about it or it never touched our lives. So while I was writing that book, uh, our life did a massive pivot, <laughs> as can happen. And my husband lost his job. We found ourselves with kind of two very small kids. My youngest son was eight months. My other son was two years old. And we were both ostensibly unemployed because I wasn't working as a barrister. And so we decided to kind of get out of town for a bit. We've been living in London for 10 years. We thought, we'll go to the countryside. It'd be a nice respite, a bit of a break from real life, inverted commas. And so we rented a cottage which bordered land that his parents had slowly bought up mm. over kind of 10 years and made up a little farm, 240 acres thereabouts of partly, mostly arable and a bit of pasture. And so while Ben was looking for a new job, we thought, well, why don't we take it on? We're here. We can see what we can make of it while we're both kind of looking for occupation. And like all this stuff at the time, you don't think it through. But reflecting on it afterwards, I think we actually needed to do something really grounded and really tangible. And we accidentally realized that we had become farmers at one of the biggest changes in agriculture in multiple generations. That's, that's, because... that's quite a big decision, though. Just like, I know you said it sort of happened accidentally, but uh, was it just... Oh, like... the, the arrogance, <laughs> yeah. right? Just, go, just be farmers. Yeah, I know. I mean, you must I have know, had but... like an element of kind of confidence that you could make a go of it. No, I think it's kind of the opposite. I think like it's it was blissful ignorance. Yeah, so I like the the least you, it's like that thing where you decide well, much like writing a book about farming. You know, you decide well, I think I can do this, and then the more you know, the more you mm. realize you don't know. Yeah. And by the time you reach the end of your journey, you think, or at least towards you, when you're on your journey, you think, how can I have had the audacity to think that mm. I know what I'm doing? But I think. I, um, I once went out with someone who was, who's a kind of entrepreneur, started lots of small businesses. And he always said, if you think about it too much, you'll never mm. do it. Don't think about it. Just do it. Yeah. Just do it. Do it. And then work out as you go along. Otherwise, you just overthink it and you stop. You don't take the leap that you need to take. And is that something that in your, yours and your husband's character that you would do? You just take the leap? <laughs> yeah, we're kind of massively impatient. <laughs> And I think um, I think that I learned a lot from being a barrister and without sounding kind of incredibly, I don't know, earnest or worthwhile about it, uh, I represented people who've been dealt a really mm. rough hand in life and through no fault of their own, they found themselves in circumstances that there but for the grace mm. of God go I. Like, it was... So many of them were sliding doors mm. lives. And I used to live with my best friend and um, when we were both in our 20s. And, you know, we both come from kind of solid middle class backgrounds where we've had a really easy ride, frankly. And we used to say all the time, that could have been mm. me. That could have been me. It's just luck, but it's not. And I think that makes you very um, grateful for the opportunities that you're given and determined to make the most out of them and I think also determined to be in love with life quite a lot and to really see the, be the beauty of it and just the luck of, of it and to do something useful and worthwhile with the opportunities you've got so I think we both kind of have that approach so we were there and, and we and I think the for me, it was not a completely foreign situation because my family oh. has a farming background. So my grandparents um, farmed in Hampshire. My uncle runs that farm. My dad was a land agent for the whole of his career. And I kind of grew up with that in a really familiar way. Obviously took it all for granted. My grandmother taught me the names of all the wildflowers, completely forgot them. You know, she taught me about home cooking and valuing food completely forgot all that because I didn't need to remember I was in a city where everything was incredibly convenient and yet also all of that was absent and then I found myself on the edge of a field being asked questions by my kids which were what, mm. what what's that called 
and what does that do and what's that for and and so I had to kind of learn to teach myself all this knowledge that had been lost and that was took me on this extraordinary really life enriching journey which is part yeah, of the story that's amazing I, I, while I was listening to you talking I um felt like saying going back to your roots and and yeah. obviously um rooted was born um tell us a little bit more about so when so 2017 was when you moved back to the farm and when did the idea of the book sort of come about and how how was it born and and um I know it's I haven't read the book yet but I'm going to um (laughs) (laughs) um it's stories about farming and farms but tell us a little bit more about that and how how it came about it was in kind of 20, 2019. So what that the idea for the book came about, um, we had just before Ben lost his job, we had managed to buy our first mm. family home in London. And it was, when I say it was a wreck, I'm not kind of exaggerating. Like when we looked around it, one of the stairs collapsed and it had no ceilings in it really had a hole in every ceiling and no one wanted it which is why we were able to buy it but it also meant that we could it was completely uninhabitable and so uh we moved in 2019 back to the house that was then kind of habitable and I realized and we we were still running the farm we were then very much invested in it had done a Mm. huge amount of changes on it and you know we're going up there for the whole of the summer and we are we are up there every weekend and half term. So the year works out 50-50. I kind of manage it now. We have a contractor mm. who does the tractor bit. Although I have just done my three-day tractor. <laughs> so <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> so what happened was I got on a tube um, about a month or two after Veganuary. And I saw all these adverts for kind of highly processed, uh, food by KFC and kind of big brands that were selling it on a sustainability, on an ecological basis, saying eat eat this highly processed soya flown in from the other side of the world and packaged in breadcrumbs and it is more ecologically sustainable than some of the farms that I had seen um, who were selling meat from down the road, ethical dairies those kind of things and I and I just thought god the gap has the gap has grown even wider in the time that I've been away the understanding about what's actually happening because what I had seen actually happen was this kind of quiet revolution happening in farming which was people were calling regenerative farming are calling regenerative farming which is both a kind of new old Mm. way of farming And it was all about regenerating the soil. And it was all about farming in a way which is ecologically beneficial. And it used a lot of time, really old ideas that people were writing about in the 1940s, but which had been forgotten because of the chemical revolution that had become conventional, even though that way of farming had not been conventional for a very long time before the Second World War. And I had seen it, um, I had seen it sort of all over the countryside and I'd been to visit these farms to try and work out what we were going to do on our farm. And I knew that people were doing extraordinary things on their farms that were bringing back insect numbers, that they were sequestering carbon, they were improving their soil within a space of a few years so that it looked completely different to how it had looked, that they were replanting hedgerows and woods and doing really beautiful things on their farms sometimes in the face of quite mm. fierce opposition they were bra- they were they were doing it bravely and it was so different from the rhetoric that i was seeing in the city that i thought these stories need to be told of these people who have taken a gamble and a risk because they believe mm. it's the right thing to do to break out of this food system which we all rely on and yet we all don't necessarily understand how completely interlinked it is and they are trying to create a new way of growing food but also selling it 
and ensuring its provenance is as ecologically beneficial and honest as they can be. And so I went to my literary agent, who is a diehard urbanite, and was very keen on me writing crime fiction because obviously <laughs> that's imagine. you know what yeah. what you would do. Yeah. I'm the Oracle of Varazi, you go write you know successful yeah. crime fiction. Yeah. And so I said to her, I think I want to write a book about farming. She went, absolutely no way. That is so boring. Are you crazy? That is so boring. <laughs> uh, and then I sort of gave her a hard sell, <clears throat> which was about how farming is really about life. All life is there. There are lessons that I've learned in farming, which are applicable way beyond the field. And when you look at our kind of multi-trillion dollar wellness industry that's selling us solutions for the problems that we're facing, whether it's loneliness or um, online addiction or lack of connection or uh, a void of kind of meaning or purpose. I found it over and over again with some of the farmers that I met who had a really clear sense, not of themselves, not just of themselves, but how they were connected to everything else on their farm, how their decision would impact mm. not just the grassland or the soil, but the butterflies, the bees, the snakes, the bats, all, all of it was interlinked and they were part of this circle, Whoa. as well as having a really clear purpose about why they were there, which was to make the best food they could. And it was about climate, it's about climate change, it's about um, hmm. making a community that is all connected. And so it's not just about food the farming revolution that's happening is about a lot more than that i think so yeah it's much, it's much bigger than that isn't it so um just um mm. just 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 a slight aside but i moved back to um to shropshire and i when i grew up um, mm. in very rural area and all my friends were, were farmers sort of dairy farmers and had small holdings and things and just i can completely relate to what you're saying mm. just moving back here i feel so much closer to um, you know, nature, and also, you know, my mum had all these stories about, or you know, um, oh goodness, about uh, mostly what you were saying about sort of like plants, and actually had this huge amount of knowledge. So just to reconnect with all of that, and then I've started growing huge amounts of stuff, and it's in a very tiny way, but just it. I'm sure those stories just are stories that need to be heard because that disconnect between, as you're saying, all of the sort of you know the January rhetoric about those sustainable messages about processed food. You know, people believe that because they believe they want to do something good mm. for the environment and for the land. And it's, it's just not mm. actually true. But there is that disconnect. So hearing those stories about people that have been working the land and producing food for the nation for forever. I just didn't That's hear so them powerful. very much. I didn't hear those stories very much. I heard <clears throat> a lot of opposition to them. Uh, and there's a reason, I think, and it's because they're too busy <laughs> farming <laughs> to tell them. <clears throat> and also, being mm, a farmer yeah. is a funny job because you, you can't, and this is one of the reasons why this revolution is so powerful, I think, but it had meant that you were alone a lot. You'd, you'd sit on the, my uncle sits on a tractor mm. by himself for days at a time. It's unusual to see someone to whom you are not related. <laughs> you know, it's, I, it's very, very <laughs> isolated. And that doesn't necessarily, I think that can lead to defensiveness sometimes where people think you don't get it. You don't understand what my life is like. And here you are criticizing me for doing this or that or the other whilst in your own choices that's not necessarily borne out and and so I wanted to tell some of the kind of difficult stories about farming because all of us who eat food so everyone <laughs> there is a consequence to our decision every time we make a decision about food and we have more power than we yeah. think I mean a really good example is eggs uh, not that long ago, the majority of eggs that we bought in England were from battery hens, from caged hens. Yeah. I mean, battery hens was banned in a few decades ago, but from caged hens. Then the industry, it was an industry-led change, worked on labelling so that people, when they bought eggs, could see if they were free-range or caged. 
and extremely quickly it moved from being the majority from caged eggs to the majority from from free range eggs so now free range is the entry point for eggs that's all consumer driven that's all people being in a shop and and making a choice based on the information they have so we do have we do have power to really positively change both the lives of farmers and the farm and land that they look after and how they do it absolutely no but that's dependent on having that information in the first place and being aware because if you're not aware of that you know you're not necessarily going to drive change i i i think it's important we there's um there's a lot of talk about sustainability there's a lot of talk i think uh, after sort of the vegan landslide, sustainability is, as a word has made, <laughs> weaseled its way in onto uh, packaging and stories. And very much like you, um, when it comes to to certain products and especially meat free ones, there's a, there's a fine line. But I think it's that word has has taken over. Uh, as well as regen and regenerative farming is also making its way in um but i Mm. wanted to ask you how do you explain what regenerative farming is because i think people have just gotten their heads around Mm. what organic means and now all Mm. finally Finally. and then now all of a sudden we've got this regenerative farming and i think people just go oh yeah one more thing but what is it and yeah let's start with that and then we'll we'll take it from there Regenerative farming at its simplest is regenerating the land and the soil rather than depleting it. So you're putting back more than you're taking out. And that I think is why people have a problem with the word sustainable is because why would you sustain something that's depleted? We have depleted our natural resources considerably. We don't want to sustain that. We want to regenerate it. And at the moment, there aren't, you're completely right, there aren't any, um, there's no regulation of regenerative farming in the way that there is regulation of organic farming. And there is arguments on both sides. I feel kind of conflicted about it because I do sort of think we need to go through this process of experimentation while we're working out, because there's no one size fits all for every farm a peat farm will be farmed very differently to a sandy farm which will be farmed differently from a clay soil farm um but in order to retain the kind of credibility that something like organics has got eventually you probably will have to regulate it sustainable has never been regulated and so you can slap it on anything and it means nothing (laughs) it means absolutely nothing yeah yeah Uh, and so if you want to retain the credibility of something then i think you probably do have to regulate it and there there will be people who will argue against it and those arguments will be valid Mm -hmm. but ultimately i think maybe that's where it might have to go but at the moment the, the kind of core principles that most people ascribe to, most farmers ascribe to, are trying to keep living roots in the soil all year round. So, for example, after you harvest your crop, you plant something called a cover crop, which means that over winter, you've still got biology in the soil. Any water that falls is held onto in the soil rather than flashing downstream and flooding villages and so on. Um, the second is to have a diversity of species. So you don't plant a monoculture, yeah. say, for example, rye grass. So rather than just having that bright green grass that we all know and we think of as a sort of postcard, black and white cows, bright green grass, you have a mixed species of stuff that our great grandparents would all have recognised, a mm. lot of which have huge benefits to the soil. Um, you try and integrate livestock as a tool so you use livestock in an arable system as well as in a grazing system so that you can do away with some machinery and to introduce fertility as well and the last one is just to keep the earth minimize the amount of disturbance that you do with the soil mechanically and chemically And that kind of brings me on to the crux of why it's different to organic because regenerative farmers use chemicals 
organic farmers can't use chemicals and yeah that's why as a farming philosophy it's an incredibly useful bridge between organic farmers Mm. and conventional farmers Mm. and to be honest to be very clear about organic farmers are farmers organic we're one of less than three percent of all farmers in england are organic so most of our organic products a lot of our organic products and feed is imported Convent, conventional farmers is a like extremely wide-ranging term, but there's been conflicts, I think, between those two groups for a long time. And regenerative offers a bridge for farmers who have been reliant on chemicals to change their farming system mm. without totally giving up those chemicals. And one of the most obvious ways that they would do this is in something called no-till, where you don't plough. Ploughing is a tool that most organic farmers have to use to get rid of weeds, to get rid of a cover crop after winter, to turn it into a green manure. It's really, it destroys soil structure. It reduces worm counts. It breaks up all the fungal pathways that we need to ensure that plants are able to access their nutrients. So it's broadly not great for the soil. But if you don't plough, then most of the time you have to spray herbicide to kill the weeds and to kill the cover Mm. crop. And then you drill directly into that sprayed off soil. Now there are loads of really exciting, well, I mean, (laughs) I find them exciting, but (laughs) loads of really exciting experiments in trying to find a way through that. So some people are using things called living mulches where you grow a really low plant that doesn't doesn't get too high like white clover Mm. and then you drill into that so you've got a sort of living carpet if you like that you're drilling into some people are trying something called pasture cropping where you slice a kind of thin you cut a thin slice into pasture and then you grow your cereal crop your wheat or your barley or whatever into that slice so you've still got the majority of the field covered not bare but you don't you're not getting weeds that are drowning your crop out so there is a lot of experimentation going on but what regenerative farming allows farmers to do is to dramatically reduce their chemicals but not completely eliminate their chemicals so insecticide you know i know a lot of farmers that don't use insecticide at all they just have worked out a way to get around it they Mm. plant later or they use beetle banks or other kind of predatory insect they attract predatory insects but they're not organic even though they haven't done that so Mm. it's a really powerful way of moving the whole farming sector towards a much more ecological way of farming without saying a list of rules that they can't now of course that means at the moment you can get people saying i'm regenerative when they're not actually that regenerative of course you can i feel like we're in the kind of teething process stage at the moment we're just working our way through and you have to allow people to get their head around this stuff like i've had to get my head around it as well there needs to be a testing stage i think that's what we're in yeah do you think that it's a, um, a pathway to organic or it's an endpoint in itself or just a more inclusive way of positive farming? Um, I think the organic sector is growing massively. Uh, it, on, in Europe, it's much bigger than England. Uh, so the EU have yeah. just committed to a quarter, so one in every four farms being organic by 2030, which is huge. But I don't think, I think one of the many lessons that I've learned from regenerative farming is diversity is key. That there shouldn't be just one system because as soon as you have just one system, then you're really vulnerable. Yeah. And while we've got war raging in Ukraine and we've got pandemics and we've got all of these threats, really serious threats to our global food system, we, we do need to be focusing on self-sufficiency as much as we can and on growing our own food food waste comes into that heavily but 
we can't we got into this situation if you look there's a wonderful phrase that i love which is, says something like um the further backwards <laughs> you look the further forwards you can see and to understand the kind of lessons of how we got here in the first place which was the first world war followed by the second world war when we went into the second world war we were importing 75 percent of our food if we hadn't quickly yeah. gone into food production then we may well not have been able to survive the war by the end of the second world war just mm. six years later we were making 70 percent of our food and that legacy is what we're, we're living with now but we only we had to do that because we were importing such a massive amount of our food that we were at risk of invasion of starving to of being starved into defeat and so with the threats globally that we're looking at at the moment we can't allow ourselves to be in the same position because there's the knee-jerk reaction to it we live with for decades afterwards yeah absolutely um so so many <laughs> nuggets of <laughs> wisdom in 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 all of that absolutely um how i i always find that it's it's good to give people something tangible so how can people get involved in this regen revolution and you also touched on um no waste which is one of my biggest pet peeves <laughs> um and it's just on, mm. on such a global scale of, of how much we waste and and what we waste in food is is one of those um one of those things but yeah that was a good <laughs> question i mean people have been... <laughs> ta ta solutions solutions what is the answer solutions, solutions and how yeah. how to yeah. get, it is overwhelming overwhelming so people are like so people are like oh it, whatever i do it's too, it's too much. much but how how can people get involved? it is overwhelming i've a massive sympathy for this and i also know i kind of subscribe to the argument that says making people feel guilty removes the responsibility of government because and big business mm. this this yes. fact that you've got huge polluters saying to people recycle when while they're still chucking yeah huge amounts of fossil fuels up into the air well we're supposed to recycle our you know wash out our plastic and recycle it all like that's gonna really count while they're still doing all that so I have sympathy for the kind of feeling of completely overwhelmed thinking, how much can I um, do? I think the reason that I think that it is worth getting involved is actually different to that, which is riffs off one of my favorite quotes from my favorite poets called Mary Oliver. And she has a line in a poem which says, attention is the beginning of devotion. You can't care about something unless you know about it, not really. And I learned that when I started to teach myself the names of wildflowers and i taught myself how to identify birdsong and all that kind of stuff that i thought would be impossible i thought i don't know how anyone learned birdsong i mean i can, can't even read music but you can you, everyone can of course they can and then i started to hear it and mm. i started to see it and i hadn't done i hadn't been able to hear or see it before then and i think it's the same with food once you start to understand how something is made once you give it the attention then you are then the devotion comes after that and then you value it and as soon as you value something you properly value it then you're going to you're not going to waste it you're going to give it respect you're probably if you're able to afford to pay more for it you will because you value it more so on a very simple level things like bread as soon as i understood the chorleywood process and how most of our bread is made and then i you know grew wheat <laughs> and i understood what goes into it i understood yeah. the difference between old kinds of wheat and our modern varieties of wheat and how they reacted in the soil differently bread became a whole different thing to me and and now I, I really value it uh, in a way that I think if I just bought a sliced white, which maybe I you know, would have done without really thinking about it when I was in the city, it, it didn't hold the same value for me. So I think if you, if you eat seasonally, 
which doesn't mean that you have to be organically. It doesn't mean that you have to spend massive amounts of money on it, but it does mean that you think, is this growing? Are raspberries growing in December? <laughs> or is this growing relatively near me at the moment? And once you do that, you connect yourself with the food and the person that grew it. And so you're making immediately a kind of emotional connection with the natural world. You can visualize it and then you care about it and you value it a bit more. And so I think if we tuned ourselves in to what was happening seasonally, we would feel more rooted, actually. I know that's what happened to me. You feel more that you understand what's happening around you and the natural cycles around you much better. Yeah, I think if you live in, in the countryside, which I which I now do, yeah. it's it's much easier to see those cycles, isn't it? Um, but then I I wonder, you know, if you do live in this urban environment, which many, many people do, it's, much. it's a little bit trickier. Yeah, much. And 84% of our population live in urban on. areas now. So you are, you're cut off from that cycle and so the only way really of connecting yourself from it is just take thinking taking the time to think about it like is this in season at the moment and then you are connected to it but you're right it is very hard when you're in the city to necessarily concentrate on time time seems to blend you don't have the experience of the seasons that you have when it's literally outside your window it's a great yeah and everything's and everything's available and everything's so fast and you know it's very striking for me you know I was I was living in in Birmingham ten years and I'm I'm from the countryside and it's it's just wonderful to be back but you it's just you know I look out my window and I've got garden you know which is full of life and you know I'm growing vegetables and you know and, and herbs and it's just every day is this wonderful experience and it's just I think but people or windowsills or yeah no I do I I think. If you, it's the yeah. same attention, attention is the beginning of devotion thing. If you look for it, you'll find it. Like even I, I was outside the other day and my, was chatting to my neighbor and he bent down and he like, like pulled the uh, dandelion out of the crack. And I was like, don't do that. I just saw a bee on it. <laughs> and it was, it would be growing out of the crack of the paper yeah. outside, outside my house. And you know, if you, yeah. nature finds a way through all the time this is why yeah. it was never going to work <laughs> going to war with it because it will win in the end it we are all nature's hardwired to win you know all it takes is kind of one seed to set seed and then it will develop a resistance to what you're trying to kill it with and i we yeah. if you look for it you'll find it you just need to sort of tune yourself into it and then you'll see it more and more yeah yeah I must ask you, just talking about dandelions, is it true that dandelions sort of help the soil and cure the soil, or is that a complete myth? You're completely right. I, it's really interesting, the whole kind of weed thing. When I was writing the book, all I could think was my grandfather's ghost, like standing behind me going, why are you writing about weeds being good? You know, uh, why are you writing about wildflowers? When it's a bit like, I guess, how a surfer looks at the ocean and reads it mm. like a book. We see the sea, they see swells and rocks and they learn to interpret it. When you learn this way of farming, you look at the land like that. So when you see nettles or docks or dandelions or whatever it might be, you don't think, gosh, shit, <laughs> I've got to, get, got to get the sprayer out or got to, get, got to get topping that. You think, what's it trying to do? Why is it there? That dock, a dock has got a massively long taproot. It's basically a subsoiler. So it will grow where there has been compressed soil. It's nature's way of trying to break that soil compaction mm. up. Same with thistles as well. Nature doesn't like bare ground. If you create it, it will put something in there as quickly as possible. And so every time something grows, the question that you ask yourself in regenerative farming is why is it there? What's its purpose? What's it trying to tell us? And I think one of the things that I wanted to get across in the book was that if we took this lesson into other areas of our life, it might change. I mean, it might change the whole way the society works. If I think about my old job and think about, you know, 
the statistics on people reoffending. So if you go to prison for less than for less than um, twelve months, which is just enough time to lose your job, family, home, all the rest of it, then your chances of reoffending. Sorry, if you go for less than six months, your chances of reoffending in the next twelve months go up by sixty five percent. If you have a baby removed by the state, you're twice as likely to have your next baby removed by the state. But if you look for the root of the problem, if you look for why it's mm. happening rather than just fixing the outcome of it, our whole systems could work extremely differently. And that's what you learn in this kind of farming. You learn to say, why is it there? What is it trying to tell us? Yeah. Why, what, you don't think what might kill it, you think what might eat it? <laughs> How can I fit it in a, a system that works together? And I think that's a really beautiful lesson for us in other areas of our life as it's well. It's an amazing lesson, I think. Um, speaking of lessons, what would you like people to take away from Rooted? Um, I know it'll be different for everyone, but what would you ideally like them to take away from what you've created and the stories that you've told? Um, May I have of two? course, you, you may have <laughs> as many as you like. <laughs> the first, I suppose, an obvious thing is to think about, to value food, to really value it. Once you understand the cost of it, because obviously our food is not priced to show its real cost. It doesn't show its real ecological cost or nutritional cost. Or, and I suppose this is what Root is about, the human cost, what we've asked people to do in the name of food, name of cheap food. Um, then as soon as we understand it, then we will value it. And if we value it, then we'll treat it with care. And I think the second thing is that the natural world is something that I genuinely think we are all hardwired to engage with. I think it's in all of us. And that connection has been broken. And so I would, 10 years ago, would never have thought that I'd be the sort of person that would be able to identify different types of wildflower or birdsong. Of course not. It was just not who I was. I was a person who was wearing kind of sharp black suits and had a kind of walked extremely quickly down a pavement. It was very, very, very <laughs> busy all the time. But if you start to learn about it and you give yourself the opportunity to notice it, it's like a spell. It works really quickly. And then you can't see anything different. You can't, you can't see anything the same again. The world shifts. You look through, at the world through a different lens. And it is the biggest gift to be able to see that. And I think all of us can do it. So I think the other thing I'd like people to take from it is that all of us can learn about this. It's not some sort of, you don't have to have grown up in the countryside. You don't have to have a particular knowledge about mushrooms or <laughs> trees. You don't have to be able to identify different species because I do think the world of nature and nature writing can be a really closed shop. It can feel quite exclusive. But all of us have the ability to do this with apps and mm. books and social media and all the rest of it. It's all out there. And it is a genuinely kind of enriching thing to have in your life. Oh, amazing, honestly. <laughs> um, just as a slight aside, um, because it is a somewhat of a foodie podcast. Yes, sorry, I've got massively No, no, not at all, but I just wanted to ask you a foodie question. So in terms of your experience on your, on your farm and growing, has mm. that impacted on what you eat at all? Yeah, well, it's definitely impacted. So we grow, um, we've got a five-year rotation. So in organics, you understand that everything leaves a legacy. Again, kind of another life lesson, but everything has a legacy that is left behind it, whether it's weeds or disease. So you can't do what non-organic farmers do, which is grow three crops in a row. And in the 80s and so on, they would grow just 20 years of wheat, one after yeah. the other. So we had to mix it all up. And so we've got spring oats, spring barley, winter wheat, beans, and then we have two years of something called a mixed herbal layer, a whole series of kind of 20 different plants to help the soil. And I think one of the 
biggest changes is I guess I've mentioned it already is bread is understanding bread and how bread is so good for your gut like the right kind of bread can be so good for your gut and how what goes into the making of it and I I mean I hope that in the book I um I'm very much the kind of townie who's come in and is learning all this from the first time from people who are much more experienced but I there's a, I mean, maybe the only book that compares farming to childbirth, because there is a scene when I'm, we're waiting for, we're waiting for everything to be ready. And this is the amazing thing. When you listen for the sound of seeds popping, you can stand in a field in the kind of heat of the sun. And it sounds like a million fireworks all going off. And it's the seeds ripening, basically drying. You can hear it. And you're kind of going, is it now? I don't know. Is it now? Is it now? It's like, go, 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 go. And you have to like get all hands on deck and you're in there kind of combining as to get it off at the right moisture level. There are so many, there's so much that goes into it that when we walk into a supermarket and pick a load of bread off the shelf, we don't think twice about. And I think that has, it's changed how I consume a lot of food, meat as well. What, meat I buy I'm extremely cautious about it and where it comes from and I know that there's a big nutritional difference between grass-fed 100% grass-fed and meat that has been um, grain-fed and so I have changed my choices a lot because I've seen the work that goes into it very very interesting um so this is this is pretty incredibly kind of technical. No, not no, it's amazing. <laughs> Honestly, it's so There's good. So, so many, so much wisdom in there, and 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 really, really interesting. And I think, um, I think the, the 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 fact that you've lived in a city and that you've done this three sixty change, and you're now farming food is is just such an incredible insight. Because I think, as you said, eighty four percent of the population live in urban areas and I think that is so relatable and to digest it into smaller bits so that it, it's actionable and tangible um, yeah. is is what we would love um, to come across so there's there's so much knowledge in there that I think is is amazing um, I was thinking throughout our conversation as well uh, we were talking about how things are grown I think even something really simple, if you are living in an apartment or where, wherever it is that you're living, just to grow, you know, those little pots that you get, um, the seed pots, um, just to grow a basil mm. and to see how long mm. it takes. Just growing a pot of basil and to see how long that little seed takes to sort of germinate and grow and to, and to so sort of reflect and apply that to every single thing that you are putting on your plate is a, is a great analogy to see how much work actually goes into. It's really hard to grow herbs. <laughs> like, it's really, really hard. hard to grow food. Like yeah. anyone who's grown their own food yeah. will know like the work yes. that goes into it. And it's not always enjoyable, frankly. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, and even, but I think when you, um, when you have kids, you see it again through their eyes. So we, uh, my youngest son, my five-year-old, is massively into food. Always from a really young age has been like, yes, chef in the kitchen. And he grew tomatoes. He grew, you know, he grows some vegetables. And watching him watch his tomatoes mm. grow is the most kind of pleasurable thing because he, it is a miracle yeah. to him. Yeah, it, it kind of is a miracle anyway, but you know, that you go from this seed to having this extraordinary thing that you can pluck off a stem yeah. and eat mm -hmm. is incredible. And I, you know, I think there were loads of, loads of sort of life lessons all along the way. We've sort of become accustomed to, we've de-linked food from the growing of it. And when you watch it grow and you understand how extraordinary it is to see it. Even things like um, vernalization, which of course some of our cereal crops, like winter wheat has to be vernalized. It has to go through a period of intense cold in order to flower, which for wheat is the, is the grain. And you think, 
well, you know what? That's kind of like life. You know, we think we have to have these periods of our lives which are frozen mm. a bit, which are hard. And we are taught that we should just pull ourselves out of it rather than kind of leaning into it and accepting that this is a time when you are, you are it's a necessary part of the growing yeah. process. And it might feel kind of hard and brutal at the time, but afterwards you're able to look back and say, that this is um, part of it. Because, I mean, this is, I guess, what what we went through. I mean, after we moved to the countryside, <laughs> all our stuff burned down, which was like, we put all our things in storage oh and there was a gosh. warehouse fire and the wow. whole lot, oh the whole lot burned down. And we'd only taken, because we were staying in a very small cottage, so we'd only taken like a little bit, also because we thought we were going to be there for kind of wow. a few months rather than over two years. And it was like life took a blowtorch wow. and just went, forget everything you've known. Yeah. And in a, obviously it was um, a surreal experience at the time, but it was also completely freeing and necessary wow. at the same time. It was a great liberation, yeah. really, of stuff. Yeah. So if, I mean, it sounds like you've just, you know, just that so much has happened and it's <laughs> a huge amount, you know, so much huge learning process but if you were going to pinpoint one thing that has been the biggest thing that you have personally learned during this whole process what would you say it was I think I would say um humility <laughs> because and we've touched on that a bit about how nature always finds a way to come back and I think we think or we're taught that we need to be in control of everything the whole time we need to be in control of our five-year plan or we need to be in control of uh, how micromanaging our diary and all the, ra- all the rest of it. And as a society, we have tried to control nature. We've tried to control our natural environment. And there, because we thought we knew better, we thought um, that we would be able to out-science it all. And I'm a huge proponent of science. Science has taught us some incredibly valuable things and our life expectancy and so on is all thanks down to scientific progress. But there is still, we need to still have an element of humility about how we approach sort of bigger, bigger questions and think that you might not always be right (laughs) about everything. You might not always have the answer. And that if you go into a situation thinking that thinking that thinking if you go into a situation with humility you're likely to notice more see more learn more Mm. i think than going into it thinking that you have the answer and that that's going to fix it all Um, because there generally isn't a silver bullet not really not for for most problems there just isn't a silver bullet and so it's that has been the biggest the biggest kind of lesson is sitting on your hands (laughs) not wanting to go in and fix stuff and waiting to see what happens and think and being open to different possibilities. Amazing. Oh, yeah. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, sorry, it's was, quite, like, it was. quite serious. It's quite yeah, serious. Yeah. No, it's so but, true, um, though. It's very, very true. Yeah. Oh, I think we're um, thinking about that. I yeah. love that. We've yeah. um, come to the end of our podcast. And um, we always ask uh, these questions. And I, I was thinking, actually, so the question is the best advice and the worst advice that you've ever gotten. And I almost feel like that was part of your best advice. <laughs> yes. <I was> like, <laughs> that is true. But you, but you may, may have, have more. So please, have, yeah. if you've yeah. got any other... Um, yeah, the yeah. best advice that you've been given and the worst advice that you've been given, basically. Yeah. I always find this question very, very interesting. Yeah, and a bit of a challenge. <laughs> uh, the worst advice, oof. Um, I suppose the worst advice is, that I've been given is that um, I suppose that, that, that there is one answer for something that I've been told that's just how we do it or Mm. that's just how it is and you don't need to worry about you know not don't need to worry about it but that is the way the system 
And I think being told that that is just the way it is, is completely untrue. We can change it. We can change the way it is. And we don't have to accept the system. Um, and I think the best advice, I mean, I've had a lot of really good advice from farmers about life. They wouldn't think that they were talking to me about life, but they were. And I think one of my favorite farmers who is like, you know, he's not on social media. He was, his kids gave him an iPad last year and he doesn't know how to use it. So it just sits in his you know, house, does, does but he is so incredibly well-read and wise about just life generally. And he talked to me once about a pendulum swing and he meant in nature, the fact that nature will always even it up in the end. But I think it happens in life. I think it happens in our societies and our political rhetoric and so on. And there's something reassuring about thinking about it like a mm. pendulum swing, like it sort of has to go this way and then it will go that way. And then it will sort of even itself out possibly long enough for everyone to forget <laughs> and then it will go back yeah. and forward and that's quite kind of reassuring because sometimes it can feel very polarized it can feel the world can feel very polarized and I think there's something kind of comforting thinking that we there will always we will always naturally try and find a mm. balance nature will naturally try and find a balance if you allow it to and that's a that was the best advice is just wait for the balance mm. to come back because it will be there it will find its it will find its equilibrium very good advice yin, oh. yin and yang <laughs> yeah yeah. Exactly. yeah yeah i mean yeah. totally yeah. that i went to a really kind of fascinating festival the other day which is really international there was a chinese artist talking about the fact that chinese the chinese language had no eye up until the revolution in the 1960s 70s so there was no me or i which is really hard to mm. speak or say anything without a mirror high eyes. Yeah. So she would be, yeah. she was translating haikus and saying, you know, this is not a direct translation. Uh, but um, part of that, I've now kind of massively lost my thread. What were we talking about? <laughs> yin and yang. <laughs> yin and yang. Part yeah, of that yeah. was the yin and yang. Exactly yeah. that. And she had, Ying and Yang on here, which is now like you know, whenever I look at Ying Yang, I think it's sort of like the nineties, basically. And, yeah, <laughs> uh, and it's lost any kind of spiritual meaning at all. But she's like, this is yeah. exactly this: light and yeah. the darkness, darkness and the light. Mm. How there's a balance to everything, and it's circular and this goes mm. round. And that's why there's no I in or me in it. It's a whole system. And I, yeah, that slightly blew my mind a bit. I was like, yes not just a sort of logo that you sew onto your backpack like no, <laughs> it means something. exactly it was everywhere um, <laughs> it does yeah thank you so oh much God, thank you. Where, where can one oh. find you um i'm not very good on twitter but i have got an i've got an instagram account which is sarah langford writes and a website of the same name and so i I mean, I have, I'm a big fan of Instagram. I know it's not very um, vogue to like it, but I have found it kind of an amazing record for what we've done on our farm, because I can go back to pictures that I took five or six years ago and see the changes where we planted hedgerows and we ch brought animals back onto the farm and changed our system. And um, it's helped me connect with loads of other farmers who are also able to yeah. show visually what they're doing and how they're doing it um so instagram is probably the yeah, best way amazing thank you so yeah. much um that was incredible yeah and thank check you out so your much yes. book of course rooted <laughs> yes out yes. now rooted <laughs> it is it is yeah thank you guys that was really that was wonderful Thank you very much for listening to What the Catcher. I hope you've enjoyed our food conversations and please do have a listen to the rest of the episodes to hear more brilliant stories about everything and anything to do with food. And a big thank you to our sponsors, Doug Drinks. Don't forget, you can also get 10% off anything you order from their website, which is dougdrinks.com. Just use the code WTFDUG10 at the checkout. 
and please do give us a five-star rating if you've enjoyed this podcast. It really does help spread the word. And if you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find Bettina at Bettina's Kitchen and myself at Rebel Recipes. Thanks so much for listening and we'll be back soon.